It's spring, and that means students across Massachusetts have been taking the MCAS exam, the annual state-mandated test that give us a clear picture of how our schools are performing. It's crucial information for parents and policymakers concerned with the quality of education in the Commonwealth. Or at least that's the story we've been told. I'm Michael Jonas from Commonwealth Magazine. On today's episode of the podcast, we're putting standardized testing to the test. Our guest is Jack Schneider, an assistant professor in the College of Education at the University of Massachusetts Lowell. And he says the story that we tell, or the one that we've been told, of standardized testing is wrong. Welcome, Jack. Thanks for having me. So you, so you not only think the, the standardized testing focus gets things wrong, you, uh, you wrote a whole book to explain why. And that book, uh, Beyond Test Scores, A Better Way to Measure School Quality, is a great read. I'd recommend that listeners who want to dig in deeper uh, find a copy. Uh, but uh, we're going to give them a little sort of picture of that in today's episode. And, and I want to get to your thoughts on what that better way to measure quality would be. But let's just start with, with, uh, with first of all, what's wrong with what we're doing now. Um, in your book, you write, we have two decades of evidence that current approaches to educational measurement are insufficient and irresponsible. Help us uh, fill in that picture. What, what are we doing wrong? Sure. Yeah, I like to think about the constituents who are using this data in terms of responding to a question like that. So first, let's start with teachers and educators. So if I'm an educator and I am seeking information about students and my school that I don't already possess from having been inside the classroom all day, 180 days a year with my students. What are the things that I don't already know? I probably do already know how my students are performing on the sorts of skills that can be measured by a multiple choice test. But I may not know some of the invisible things like, you know, how safe do students feel at school? Um, how are they developing as citizens? Uh, how engaged are they in my class? These are really important and fairly basic questions that educators don't currently have data on. Uh, you know, I've had conversations with principals who have said, I don't understand how the new data that you are providing are really actionable, right? Here's another example of how impoverished our measures are, where principals have uh, developed, in many cases, a view towards data where if it's not related to test scores, then it doesn't matter. And that has really important rippling consequences inside our schools. It matters tremendously, I would argue, if students feel like they belong at a school or if they value learning, that those data are actionable. But the fact that they haven't been available to educators means that educators haven't been able to focus on those things in the same way that they've focused on standardized test scores, which, by the way, tend to correlate very strongly with family income and parental educational attainment. Let's just talk about one other constituency here, and that would be parents and the public who often look at standardized test scores and believe that they are learning something about school quality. Well, as I just mentioned, standardized test scores, at least the proficiency rates, tend to correlate pretty strongly with demography. So when we're looking at test scores, we're often looking at demographic data in disguise. We're not learning something about schools. We're learning something about families and neighborhoods. Uh, growth scores are a step forward, and we do incorporate those to some extent. But people really aren't learning about 
the quality of the schools when they're looking at available data. And that shapes where people live, where they enroll their children in school, the kind of conversations they have, the kind of advocacy work they do. And so it's really important that we expand the data available to these stakeholders and other groups. Mm -hmm. And and yet, uh, I mean, as you write about, we've kind of uh, had these kind of twin twin measures of, uh, you know, largely math and English scores that have have really become, uh, you know, in some ways the uh, the drivers of of uh, of our certainly of our accountability systems in this state and really across the country. Um, you know, I guess often it seems like these discussions come down to sort of the both and or the either or with people saying there are all sorts of other ways that we ought to be looking at at uh, school quality, but. At some level, and you know, I think this goes back to as you write about in your book, you know, the kind of nation at risk report and all the all the reports that started in the '80s and have moved forward and led to a lot of these systems being put in place. That you know that that uh, kids are falling behind. It, a lot of it was tied to the ability of uh, of kids to make it in the kind of uh, you know increasingly knowledge oriented economy, and that um, you know all the other things are nice, but if we're not getting Getting kids on track with basic, you know, numeracy and literacy, then, then it's sort of all for naught because that's, you know, there is kind of a hierarchy, I guess, is sort of how how some people would explain why those have become the focus. Uh, I mean, is that that does that get it wrong though? Isn't isn't there something to that idea that the the environment, all the other measures are important, but if if kids are really off track on those basic skills, that's pretty. That's pretty primal, I guess you might say. Yeah, I, I, I agree to an extent. So uh, let me first say that it matters if kids are literate and numerate and that by learning whether or not they are, uh, we can then focus our attention. So I don't think standardized tests are in and of themselves uh, totally destructive, but when you begin to attach high stakes to them, uh, you turn them into weapons, essentially, policy weapons that attack the mission of schools, that really narrow the mission of schools. So I think, you know, in in terms of responding to that, I would say, well, first of all, you've got to measure a lot more stuff to ensure that schools don't narrow their missions in a way that do, no longer aligns with what we all value in public education. Sure, we want kids to be literate and numerate, but not at the exclusion of being exposed to arts and music education or getting a balanced uh, curriculum that includes social studies uh, and science or getting physical education. And, you know, I could go on in terms of the consequences of focusing only on standardized test scores. We've seen a generation of students and teachers uh, that have begun to view schools as less joyful places and less authentic places for learning. Um, the, those are big problems. So I would say that you know we really need to consider the unintended consequences of a narrow focus on measurement. But additionally, if we want students to be literate and numerate, we also need to know how we're going to get them there. So just looking at proficiency rates doesn't tell us why students are performing the way they are. And 
In some cases, it may be because students aren't engaged. In some cases, it may be because students don't feel safe. In some cases, it may be because uh, students have conditions outside of school that are preventing them from learning. More information actually better helps us answer those questions. And then I think the final piece I would say is that I'm not exactly sure that literacy and numeracy sit at the top of a hierarchy because I'm a parent. My daughter is in third grade. She took MCAS for the first time this year. And granted, I'm in a fairly privileged position, right? I'm a professor. My wife is a teacher. We own our home. Uh, we can do a lot for our daughter. But I frankly care a lot less about her MCAS scores than I do if my daughter knows how to get along with her classmates. That's not something that I can totally control. I care a lot more about whether my daughter is exploring her own interests and passions, if she's developing interests and passions. I care a lot if she has a sense of, uh, you know, what's going on in the world and a sense of civic responsibility. Um, that certainly can't be measured by a standardized test, um, and particularly not a multiple choice test in math or English. And so the hierarchy of values that we have, I think, is a really broad one that includes a lot of things like whether or not our students care about the things that they're learning and how engaged they are in the world and how well they're able to get along with people who are different from them. Uh, so, you know, I wouldn't advocate for no longer measuring literacy and numeracy or not focusing on them, but a high-stakes measurement system that is narrowly tailored in the way it is is just demonstrably bad for kids in schools. Mm -hmm. Although I guess, I mean, just to, you know, push back a little bit, I think some people would say, um, uh, not to sort of single you out, but I guess I am, that that's sort of a middle class view, right? That's, that's the argument, that you have the luxury to, uh, not that, uh, that everyone shouldn't can care about those other issues, but, you know, your, your kind of wish for your daughter to have those rounded kind of uh, 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 attributes or skills developed is easy for you to say because, you know, she's probably also doing okay with the basic skills given the, you know, the background she comes from. But that for, for poor kids, again, not that we want to not see them exposed to that richness, but that for a lot of those families, and I, I mean, I don't I, you would be more familiar with the survey research than I am, but, you know, that, 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 that they really are worried about whether they are getting those basic things first, first of all, and, 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 uh, Again, I mean, this can get into questions about how our higher ed system works, but, you know, if it's a matter of getting to a place of, you know, greater economic uh, self-sufficiency or whatever, however you want to measure that, you know, through higher ed, a lot of our higher ed institutions, they're going to look first and foremost at, you know, can you, can you do the work academically? So they're kind of giving a feedback also maybe to our K-12 system about the hierarchy of what matters. And, you know, and then at some level, people would say that employers are too. I mean, we know we've heard a lot about the range of skills and the need for critical thinking or collaboration in the knowledge economy. And so maybe there's some shift taking place, but, but it still seems that, I don't know, I guess I'm just, uh, it, it still seems that the effort around education reform was driven by a sense, and you know, there was an early on efforts to call it the civil rights movement of our time, and it was the sense that poor kids were being left behind. And at, at least at that time, it wasn't 
because people were saying they're not getting exposed to arts. It was because people were saying, you know, they're getting through high school. Our high schools were graduating kids, and there was no correspondence between that and any necessary sort of standard of, of, of ability with basic skills. Yeah, I'll respond in what may be an unsatisfying way, and that's to say I want all of that for every kid. Right. I, I am not okay saying that we are going to give more privileged students everything and we are going to make less privileged students literate and numerate. And I understand that that is one way, right? That is one strategy of dealing with the challenge of deep inequality that we have in this society is to say, well, let's do the most important thing for the least advantaged. Uh, and I think a better answer is to say, let's do all the things for the least advantaged. Now, that's a much more difficult proposition, which entails addressing inequality head on. So this is something that is going to have to be handled well outside the confines of the schoolyard. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that that's where the conversation needs to go because otherwise you have a forced choice where you say either we are going to try to do everything in an insufficient way for the least advantaged or we'll try to do a limited number of things in a really robust way for the least advantaged. Um, but we are accepting the conditions uh, of a broader society in which some young people's lives are predeterminedly less than the lives of their more privileged and affluent peers. Uh, and I, I don't accept that. And so I think that what you're pushing on is a really important point, and that's that uh, we need to begin measuring and valuing all of the things that matter for young people in schools if we are going to see the extent to which there is inequality across all of those outcomes for young people. And then we need to take seriously the work of trying to address those inequalities rather than to say, uh, you know, we've, we've to some extent closed the gaps in literacy and numeracy as measured by multiple choice uh, machine scored tests. Uh, our work is done here. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, I think there is uh, certainly, I think, sort of a growing appreciation for that view that you're articulating. And I guess I'm even struck that our uh, still fairly new state education commissioner, Jeff Riley, who's appointed a little over a year ago, um, has, you know, has talked about this issue and, and, and I guess I would say sort of maybe tried to straddle the divide somewhat. He was, um, I mean, he's, he's said that he thinks we've overemphasized testing and he's talked uh, quite a bit about his work in Lawrence, where he was the state-appointed receiver and, you know, brought in there because of, you know, chronically low-performing schools based on standardized test scores. And he came in and I guess kind of maybe he's kind of the best sort of, you know, exemplar or, or kind of a, a leading figure for the kind of both-and uh, idea in that he has, gone, when he went in there, he said, we absolutely need to look at ways that kids in Lawrence are, are not, uh, you know, being served well and are not, are not uh, achieving on those, you know, standard measurements, but that we can't do it at the expense of this other stuff. And he made a, uh, you know, had a big focus on, on arts and drama. And, you know, he would talk about, you know, the, you know, sports activities, you know, even for himself, sometimes that was the thing he said that kept him engaged with school. And it's that full, round, round more rounded education that, that, as you say, we want 
you know, we want for our kids, we should want it for all kids. I guess, you know, it's, you know, I think we've kind of come up against in, in U.S. education these kind of constraints, you know, of how much can you pack into what schools can do, how much can you pack into, you know, again, this is a different argument about, you know, longer school days, what, what's a, you know, a fairly limited school day and, you know, is it, is it just not enough time to give especially kids who are behind all of those things? Maybe, you know, maybe there's a different way to structure it that, that actually it's not a question of insufficient time. But, but I, I think you're right that, that we're grappling with that more and more. I'm also wondering what you think of, and, and you kind of hit on sort of the, the maybe, I guess, unintended consequences of testing in term, and, and I was struck by one, uh, one line you had in your book uh, you said buying a home means buying a school at one point, and that certainly I think most people will understand what that means. And, and, and in fact, I've always kind of said that's the, you know, that we have a very robust sort of school choice program in this country, and, and it's driven by income, and you choose your school by, by where you buy a home, and that's, of course, very stratified by income. Um, but but I, I talk a little about how you you know, feel the standardized testing era has has uh, impacted that. You write a little bit in the book about your own. At the beginning of your book, you talk about as a, you know, sort of middle class parent in Somerville, uh, you know, a community with, you know, with a lot of economic and racial diversity, uh, kind of, you know, having conversations with, with, with people about, you know, are these schools good for my kid or not? And again, the conversations often, uh, you know, the, the language you know, or the currency of that language was the test scores, because that's kind of what we've had available. And and what's the impact of that? And um, I know even our, our research director here, Ben Foreman, has talked a lot about how he feels the system has, you know, we've seen a big increase in the concentration of poverty in in Massachusetts's gate, so-called gateway cities over the last 20 years. I mean, it's hard to tie it exactly and say that's the only factor driving it. There's so many things involved. But I know Ben and others have felt that our accountability system is not doing any favors to efforts uh, to, uh, you know, support those schools and, frankly, to have the kind of economic integration there that we might want. As the, the point about when you buying a home means buying a school, families of more means have more choices. And, and they can elect, as I'm sure you've seen you know, I live in Boston, so I've seen it too. You know, not everyone, but I've seen certainly a good chunk of my more privileged middle-class neighbors. They leave when it comes to school issues. Yeah, we have lived in Somerville since basically my daughter was born, um, and uh, she's now in third grade, and she's had a wonderful education. She is in a very diverse class in an increasingly less diverse school because I think that the conversation actually has changed about the Somerville schools Mm -hmm. uh, and particularly around the whiter schools that those schools, one of those schools has traditionally been perceived as a quote-unquote good school. Uh, Now my daughter's school, I believe, is is perceived as a quote-unquote good school. Um, People are driving up real estate prices in the area in order to live nearer that school. And what you end up with, uh, as is so often the case, is a kind of feedback loop where real estate prices go up because of demand to live near a quote-unquote good school as measured by test scores, which really just measure family privilege. As those real estate prices go up, only the more privileged 
people who are trying to buy homes in that neighborhood are able to get them. Uh, they then enroll their kids in the school. The test scores go up, sending a signal to people that these are quote-unquote good schools and drawing even more privileged buyers for available real estate. Uh, the opposite happens in other places where the schools develop a bad reputation. Nobody wants to buy a home there. Uh, and as a result, you do not attract the kinds of people whose kids tend to do well on standardized tests. Now, this is a big problem with our measurement and accountability system. Set aside all of the philosophical pieces we were discussing earlier about what we value in school and what we want educators to be focused on and what we want for all young people. Let's just talk about the fact that the present accountability system hues pretty closely to demographic variables like race, family income, parental educational attainment, that when you are looking at the ratings of schools, you are often looking at demographic data in disguise. And so when people are out shopping for homes, they are not walking through every school. They are not talking to people who send their kids to those schools. They're not spending the day inside the school watching young people talking to educators. They're doing things like going on and looking at greatschools.org and looking at a 1 through 10 summative rating that completely wipes off the map large swaths of Massachusetts that they are no longer considering in terms of a place that they might live. That segregates our Commonwealth even more than it already is. So I'll give you an example. Uh, I wrote a piece in the Washington Post, I don't know, a year or two ago uh, in response to the fact that one of these real estate websites, I think it was Trulia, but a number of them build in greatschools.org data into their web interface and allow you to sort neighborhoods by the greatschools.org rating of schools. Well, I went on for my neighborhood and I plugged in, you know, what I could afford for a home and I set the school rating bar at zero. I don't care about the quality of the schools. And it said, here are all the homes available for sale uh, near all these, you know, ostensibly not very good schools. And then I set a lot the, of great coffee shops. So yeah, that's uh, right. I should have set, should have set the, the barista rating there to 10. Go. Yeah. And, and I, I set the rating to 10 and all the schools disappeared. And along with the schools, the homes, because all of the schools rated below 10 got wiped off the map and all of the homes for sale near them suddenly were not search returns for me anymore. Now I thought, 10 is a pretty high bar, 10 out of 10. It doesn't get any better than that. Maybe there aren't any 10 out of 10 schools in Massachusetts, but all I had to do was zoom out, and I could see there were loads of them in Belmont, and Newton, uh, in Weston, in Wellesley, and lots of other places that begin with W, in fact, uh, and that if I didn't know better... Lake Wobegon, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, they just have to be above five okay. in Lake Wobegon. Uh, so, uh, you know... It, if I didn't know better, I might think, well, gosh, I care a lot about my kid. Um, I guess I need to live in one of these places. And I, I certainly hear all the time this scary rhetoric about how we're falling behind the world and how our schools are in crisis. Maybe that's true. Maybe I can't live where I want to live. I mean, this is a deep problem and it's a data problem. If you look at polling, and you probably look at polling all the time, uh, but if you look at national polling on schools, a majority of Americans say their own kids' schools 
are about an A or a B when they give letter grades to them. They say the nation's schools, same percentage of Americans say the nation's schools, they're about a C or a D. Well, it can't be true at the same time that most people send their kids to pretty good schools and that at the same time, most schools stink. Uh, the fact is that most schools are pretty good, but we have this dangerous policy rhetoric about how our schools are in free fall and in total crisis. Our schools are better than they've ever been. Are they still unequal? Absolutely. Do they still need to improve? Totally, right? There's a lot of work we have yet to do, but that work isn't going to get done as long as we say, well, the system's entirely broken, so I'm going to look out for myself, and then we provide data for people that steer them towards whiter, more affluent neighborhoods. That's, that's a recipe for segregated schools, which we've been struggling with for a long time, which we're never going to get past as long as we have such narrow systems. Well, let's take the uh, last few minutes we have uh, to talk a little bit about um, what you call the better way to measure school quality. We've talked a lot about the deficiencies of, uh, of, of, of what we're doing now. And um, I should also mention, along with your affiliation at UMass and the book uh, that you've authored, uh, the, another uh, uh, hat you wear a title, if I have it right, and that's that you're the research director for initiative here in Massachusetts. Uh, it's a little bit of a mouthful. I'm going to try to uh, get it right here. The Massachusetts Consortium for Innovative Education Assessment. And um, it is, in short, a, an effort that you've been part of to try to uh, not only, I guess, imagine a different or better way, but really try to develop that and, and, and at least pilot putting that in place. So can you just talk a little bit about what that is, how it, how it uh and how it came about and, and where it sort of stands now. Yeah, the consortium in some ways grew out of a pilot study that I was doing in Somerville. Um, and one of the things that we hadn't done in our effort to more broadly measure school quality in Somerville was come up with a way to measure student learning that was not based on a standardized test, right? So we were using MCAS growth scores, so the SGP scores, which are a fairer way of looking at the MCAS scores. Uh, but we wanted to know a bit more clearly what students know and can do in terms of building out a, a, a clearer, more comprehensive data system. Uh, so we partnered with the Center for Collaborative Education, which is a Boston-based nonprofit, which has been working on performance assessment of student learning. And then with the leadership of my state senator, Pat Jalen, uh, then organized a consortium of then six districts, now eight, Attleboro, Boston, Lowell, Milford, Revere, Somerville, Wareham, and Winchester. I hope I named eight there. Impressive. Yeah. Uh, and I try to do them in alphabetical order. So, <laughs> so who says that rote memorization is a bad thing, Yeah, right, right, right exactly. Well, it turns out that that's actually authentic knowledge <laughs> that I have gained by saying this there you go. Uh, in, in context. And our effort is um, to design the accountability system of the future, uh, that we don't think that measurement and accountability are going away. Uh, that the horses have left the barn. Um, so let's try to be responsible about this. We are trying to build the uh, accountability system of the future by engaging 
with uh, actual stakeholders in this process. So not only did we talk with community members, teachers, principals, administrators, parents, students in all of the consortium districts as we were building our school quality framework and talking about the ways that we would try to measure school quality, uh, but we created, created a governing board uh, that is a co-governance model where uh, districts are represented by their superintendents and their teachers union presidents and we make decisions by consensus. Now, what other planet uh, could you imagine teachers union presidents and superintendents now 16 total making decisions by consensus? Wow. Do you um, start the meetings by singing Kumbaya? Yeah, we right do, we do. Okay. I, I bring my guitar there you go. and uh, we try to have our meetings outside so we don't burn the place down with our <laughs> campfire. But um, but, you know, there's powerful buy-in here around the idea that, you know, data are not bad. Data are powerful. Data can empower parents, communities, educators, students themselves, but they need to be collected in a way that aligns with all of the things we actually care about, and they need to be presented in a responsible manner that actually advances the work of creating more equitable and, frankly, better, stronger schools. And, and I know that uh, it, it involves uh, one of the sort of buzzwords in education, too, which is multiple measures, right, of, of school quality. And if I'm right, at least the, the, the effort you piloted in Somerville included a, a set of uh, inputs as well as outcome measures um, to try to look more holistically. And it's also, you know, uh, you write also in your book about a big effort that's been underway in California uh, to also um, try out something very different than the uh, sort of standardized English and math score-based uh, system um, there. And that's been uh, uh, an effort. I think it's uh, everything in California is big. I want to say it's involved like a million students or something on that on, the, on that level. Yeah, it's a subset of districts that somehow acquired a waiver back under the NCLB right. waiver process, uh, and they're the core districts, the California Office to Reform Education, and they're. Uh, you know, in many ways, the sort of West Coast version of uh, our operation, except they are bigger, better funded, and in some cases, uh, or, or in, in, in some ways of seeing it, uh, less ambitious. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, that, that makes it a little hard for me to sleep at night sometimes, <laughs> um, but it's nice to know we have company out right, there. Right, and, and And so, and I know there's been some state funding that has supported these efforts here, in Massachusetts, um, I mean, where do you sort of see this all going? And I and I know in your book you've acknowledged, I guess, what are some of the? Uh, I mean, I think any good uh, uh, effort to put forward an argument, you know, does better when it anticipates the the kind of incoming criticisms. And you talked about, you know, there's questions about about how costly would it be to do something like this. I guess I'm also struck by um, as much as we've. Uh, you know, kind of come to use standardized testing, the term even in some circles as a pejorative. I mean, it comes with the advantage, telegraphed in its very name, that it's standardized. And, and, and again, that, that was, uh, you know, I mean, some of the roots of that going back to the college uh, uh, admission test were supposedly driven by this kind of quest for 
for equity or at least equality of, 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 of uh, how we assess people fairly. And so, um, I mean, wh where, do you, where do you sort of see this going or what realistically do you hope for in terms of this uh, uh, reimagining or reinventing of, of an accountability system? Yeah, I, I view our work as a kind of pilot effort on behalf of the entire Commonwealth. Uh, you know, that we are trying out the best and most robust version of what we can imagine. And that if at the end of the day, the worst case scenario is that the state ends up measuring school quality a bit more comprehensively and presents data that are not so skewed towards whiter and more affluent schools and districts, and that uh, punishments are scaled back, um, you know, I think that's a victory for me. Uh, right now, what we're attempting is a kind of moonshot in terms of building an accountability system that does everything that everybody wants. And I think we're going to learn some hard lessons along the way. So far, uh, we've been able to do it at a very low cost, despite the fact that one out of every 10 students in the Commonwealth are in our consortium. That's largely due to the size of the Boston public schools, which are a member of our consortium. Uh, but I but think it's not every school in Boston that's that's taking part of this, is it? Or It's the entire district that is participating in the school quality measures side of the work, which is the side that I lead. And uh, we are ramping up with the performance assessment side, which is the work that the Center for Collaborative Education leads. Um, you know, the, the performance assessment piece is more expensive because it requires a lot of teacher professional development. But I would say that, you know, the accountability movement of the past quarter century has really been absent a really critical piece, and that is the capacity building piece, that we say we are going to measure schools and hold them accountable. But at what point are we going to actually build the capacity of schools to improve? Um, that's something that Massachusetts has been better at than other states, but we are still woefully inadequate in terms of the kinds of professional development that we're supporting for educators and school leaders. Well, I've got a uh a whole ton of other questions I'd love to get into, but we probably should uh, should call it uh, call it a wrap, and uh, maybe we can uh, continue the conversation. But I want to thank you, Jack Schneider, for coming in to talk to us on the podcast. Thanks for having me. It was great. And if people want to ask their own questions of me, they can uh, shoot me an email. Uh, I'm easily Googled. And we have our own podcast, which is called Have You Heard, which they can probably find wherever they get their podcast. All right, and I have heard, and I've heard of it, and listened to it, and it's a great, uh, a, a great uh, conversation. So thanks again. 